The Renegade Aviator, David Costa. Oh, oh, updated when I'm done. Two soldiers, five. We on the airfield and airspace. You are clear for takeoff. Have a good one. Thanks, Mo. Clear for takeoff. Check your bucket brake off. Check your trim set. Check your nozzle steering on. Maneuver. Damn it, half school face. Left turn out. That's what I'm up. Outflips now. In the air and on air, the Renegade Aviator combines jet airshow performances and this radio show to promote aviation, excellence, overcoming obstacles, and achieving goals. Here he is, the Renegade Aviator, David Costa. All right, ladies and gentlemen, this is David Costa, the Renegade Aviator, and I got a special guest today. I'm with Mark Henley, the team lead for the Aeroshell Aerobatic Team. And if you've been to air shows in the past few decades, you've seen these beautiful T6s flying under the Aeroshell colors. And Mark, welcome to the Renegade Aviator Radio Show. That's good to be here today. Hey, Mark, you guys have been a staple in the air show industry for a long time. But for those people that might be listening and may not know who the Aeroshell team is, why don't you give us a quick um, overview of kind of how you guys got started, how you got to be today. The team actually started almost 35 years ago. My brother, Alan Henley, and Steve Gustafson, who is still on the team, he's actually the only original member that's still flying. But he, the two of them got together and, and uh, wanted to try to do some formation uh, aerobatics. And anyway, they ended up were able to do it and introduced it into a, an air show pretty quickly after they started. And uh, they found out real quick that people like to see formation aerobatics. It's one thing to do solos. We all did solos back in the day. But, but seeing people seem to be a lot more interested if we were doing it in formation. And so that's basically where the team started from. They, uh, they had another guy named Ben Cunningham who started real early on. And so they flew for several seasons under the name North American Aerobatic Team. It's kind of really before we really knew what sponsorships were all about. And so anyway, they flew for about 12 years. And then uh, Ben Cunningham decided he was going to retire. And so they gave me a call and I joined the team then. I flew on my brother's wing for 12 years and then he was in an accident and ended up broke his neck and was paralyzed. And so after a couple of seasons, I ended up moving to the lead position. I've been there ever since. We don't see a lot of old uh, World War II vintage Warbird formation acts on the airshow circuit. And you guys have been there, you know, longevity matters. So you got the great support of your sponsor, which is Aeroshell. That's kind of what this whole premise of Save Our Air Shows, right? I mean, without the support of businesses that want to get involved in this great carnival circus we call air shows this stuff doesn't happen i mean it takes a lot i would imagine to put three t6s out in front of people well i'll tell you what you run into whether you're we're having a pandemic or not air shows for the most part do not survive at all without sponsors whether it's the performer 
or whether it's the venue, they do not survive without having sponsorship. And so this pandemic has just certainly made it a lot more difficult to go out and try to get sponsors. We've actually had conversations with a few air shows that are actually weren't supposed to have them until in the fall, which, you know, everybody's hoping and praying that the pandemic will be uh, certainly on the decline by then and that we could still have some uh, events. But a lot of them are because of the businesses have been shut down for so long and people are worried about uh, profitability and whether or not. And so a lot of the sponsors have, are uneasy making a financial commitment to an event without really knowing what the business environment is going to be after this, uh, we get started back up. So it's difficult for not only the performer, but also for the venue both, not only procuring new sponsors, but also trying to maintain the ones you have. That's one of the things that, you know, that we have are obligated to, you know, we have to have a, a certain event count and, uh, it's going to be hard this year to, uh, even to make the minimum of, of what we're required to do. And uh, so 2020 is going to go probably down in history. It's probably the hardest season for air shows in general because of the pandemic. I couldn't agree more. And it's, it's one of the things we're telling our listeners, you know, make yourselves known to these sponsors out there. If you see a team, any performer or air show that has sponsors, make sure that you reach out to these companies and say, look, we appreciate you. We're here. We use your products. Mike Wiskus was on our show a couple weeks ago and the same things, you know, reach out to Aeroshell, reach out to Lucas Oil, reach out to all these great companies that are standing tall because um, if they don't know that the fans appreciate them, we as performers, it's great. We get the waves of the crowd and fly cool airplanes. But I think uh, you hit the nail on the head. Keeping those sponsors front and center is uh, what makes these beautiful events we call air shows happen. Yeah. Well, you know, people, a lot of the average air show fan probably doesn't understand what it costs to put on an event. But air shows, especially nowadays, when you start having to buy insurance, you're having to, and now you have to have, are required to have a, a licensed air ball. Price of fuel is, of course, right short term has been fairly inexpensive, but generally, if you get out on the West Coast, aviation fuel is fairly expensive. It costs a lot of money to produce an air show. And like I said, air shows do not live off the gate. If you talk to most producers, then typically the money they raise at the gate is they'll already have all of the cost covered by the sponsors, and then the, the gate money is basically where their profit is. And so without the sponsors, they don't have that seed money to even get the thing started because there's a lot of money goes out of pocket before you even open the gate. It's, it's a very expensive thing to try to produce an air show. I was uh, involved in a local event originally from Birmingham, Alabama, and we had a civic organization there that put on an air show. Matter of fact, over the years, they ended up there for almost 75 years. And so I participated in probably about the last 15 years or so of that air show and um you know and i saw it firsthand what it took to, to run an air show and it i actually think every performer out there ought to see that side or, or participate in an air show so they can understand there's two sides to it and it's very difficult to produce a show and it's expensive and it's very complicated you know you, sometimes you get some of these performers come out and they they expect certain things and and when things don't go quite as smooth, they get upset and like, well, wait a minute, you know, you got to realize 
they're working as hard as they can, you got to kind of give them a little break here. Absolutely. <laughs> and so yeah, I think every performer ought to be involved in producing an air show. They certainly appreciate what they do a lot more. <laughs> That's true. That's true because those volunteers, they don't get paid. They don't get any of the accolades, but they are working. And one good thing about when things slow down, it gets prima donnas out of the way or they fizzle up and die. But uh, because there are so many people involved and um, here we are, I'm positive on this. We are going to come back. We always have. And, you know, we're really there as performers, as showmen, as part of this value to that person that walked through the gate, those little kids on up to uh, senior citizens. There's something there at air shows for everybody. And your aircraft touch everybody. I mean, they're loud, they're large, and they've got history behind them. Of the airplanes I've flown, I'll tell you what, the T-6 has been the most humbling airplane I've probably flown. The T-6, of course, like you said, you've hit the nail on the head. It's big, it's noisy, the capacity of having really good smoke systems, and it's all the things that make a good air show airplane. And then you put four of them in formation, it makes a great act. The thing is, the T-6 is not the easiest airplane in the world to fly. I mean, most people that have ever flown one will tell you that when they first get in it, it humbles them a little bit. It flies actually pretty nice in the air, but trying to get it up and down safely without ground looping it, especially in a good crosswind, you have to be on your toes all the time flying one. I have had a few cases over the years where you kind of drop your guard, the next thing you know, the thing swerves and trying to run off the runway and you grabbing brakes and ailerons and <laughs> and you sit there and think where the heck did that come from but i never ground loop one yet but i it tries every time you land it you get a little bit of inattention and it'll definitely try to go around with you there's still a lot of t6s still around the country and if i had to guess i'd say there's probably better than 100 t6s still flying and the reason is is because they're so reliable. They've got the Pratt & Whitney R1340 is probably the most reliable uh, uh, power plant built during that era, and, which, and that's, of course, the engine that we use on the T6. They're extremely reliable. I'm not saying they're very fuel efficient, but they just, it's like an Everetti bunny. It just goes and goes and goes. I'm a Hey, this is David Costa, the renegade aviator. Faith, family, friendship and work that serves others. So how can I help you? If you're looking for help in aviation or help in going after some huge goal in your life, contact me through Renegade AV, the number 8R, renegadeaviator.com. Air shows may have nothing to do with what you're passionate about, but what I've learned through my passion and my pursuit of my passion can help you in your passion. This is my work that serves others. People have helped me. Here's my opportunity to help you. RenegadeAviator.com. You can leave me a message right through the website. Click that little tab on the right. Your passion, your potential. This is David Costa, the Renegade Aviator. All right, ladies and gentlemen, David Costa, the renegade aviator, like the ever-ready bunny. That's where we left it with Mark Henley of the Aeroshow Aerobatic Team talking about the North American AT-6. I mean, we fly them year after year, show after show. We fly them IFR. We've been up into Canada. We've been down to El Salvador. I mean, like we go to El Salvador, we just go straight across the Gulf about three and a half hours to the first fuel stop, and we just 
you got the confidence, plus having aeroshell oil, we know that the engines will run the overhaul, and we just fly them. It, and you got real good peace of mind because they are so reliable. The airframes, there's still quite a few parts available. And so if you need something, you're not having to make something that's questionable whether or not it's a, a good replacement part. You can still buy new old stock. So we're still getting parts that are manufactured by North American. And so it just makes a real reliable airplane and like i said the fact is that so many people flew them during the war that uh, of course a lot of those guys now they're in their twilight years now but we've had over the years like I said, we've been doing this for about 35 years and we've had all these people come up to us and say i flew those you know in the 50s or i flew those in world war ii or whenever they happened to serve and so there's a lot of real appreciation that we were still flying them and doing what we were doing with them. I've had several uh, World War II veterans that go, man, you know, we used to fly them and we did aerobatics, but man, we didn't do anything like you guys did. <laughs> and so, but it's fun to have people like that come up and talk to us and find out how they were using them and what they were doing. And when, I mean, we've had people come up. My brother's airplane, it was actually at Pensacola. And he's had several people come up to him and show them in their logbook where they flew that particular airplane. Oh, wow. And so it was at Whiting Field for a long, long time. And uh, so it's, it's kind of neat to have somebody walk up and say, I flew this airplane. And they'd have the, in the logbook tell you the date and how many, you know, how much they flew it. It's really kind of neat to, to have that somebody follow it like that. It is such a connection with the airplane like that. When you're flying, since you're flying a four-ship, what's probably the hardest type of maneuver that you're doing that maybe the crowd doesn't appreciate? Because, you know, they all look up in the air and they see these beautiful airplanes up there and sometimes don't understand really what you guys are going through when you're flying a four-ship back with a plane like that. Yeah, one of my deals is, number one, is don't hit the ground. I'm keeping the whole flight in the show box and at a safe altitude. I mean, if I make a mistake, that it could be fairly catastrophic for everybody. But also, I'm also trying to make power changes to make the formation stay symmetrical. What most people don't realize is the slot guy, if you're doing a loop, he, because he's stepped down, he's actually making a much larger loop, and it requires a lot more power. And so if I go and pull a loop, and I'm using more on one loop than the other, then I can determine whether or not the slot guy can stay. Sometimes he'll start sliding back. Now, sometimes it's his fault, but sometimes if I don't pull the power back enough and give him a little bit of help, it makes it where he can't stay in. So, you know, there's a lot of those little things. One of the things that we do, and the Thunderbirds and the Blue Angels do the same thing, is we actually do not hold the exact same position all the time. Hmm. We move around to make it look like we're in the same position but we're actually for example if we're going in a say a right hand turn then what usually the if you're making a right turn then the left wing guy's gonna ride high and move forward because if he doesn't it'll make him look like he's got sucked and so in the same thing on the inside the right wing would have to drop down a little bit and slide back to make the formation look symmetrical We've done this over the years. You know, we've videoed a lot of it, and we would sit there and be looking at it and go, you're out of position there. I said, well, I, wasn't, I was right where I was supposed to be. And I said, well, look, you know, if you'll move here, you know, it'll make it look better. And so, and we've critiqued it oh, to a point where we, and now everybody knows 
where in the air show box we are and how they need to be. They need to be high or low or forward or back to make it look symmetrical. And you're having to do that. Plus, they're holding their spot and having to make those adjustments. So it's big flying wing is not just holding a particular spot. It's knowing where you are in the box and then where you need to be to make it look symmetrical. So it's a whole lot more to it than just holding a particular space relative to, to where my airplane is. It's a lot more complicated than just holding a particular spot. I flew wing for 12 years. I'd always get the question. They'd say, well, what are you focusing on? Are you looking at the trailing edge of the wing? Are you looking at the cowling? Are you looking at, you know, what are you looking at? And I said, well, when you first start, you'll reference, say, the cowling and the lead, uh, trailing edge of the or the inboard edge of the aileron is your reference line. I said, but that's just to get started. I said, once you get in there, I mean, I'm just looking at the airplane. I can tell it's like if you're driving your car down the highway and you're following a car in front of you, what do you look at? Well, you look at the car. You're not looking at the taillight or the tag or the windshield, rear windshield. You're looking at the car. It's the same thing. We look at one particular thing to kind of get oriented initially, but then after that, you're just looking at the airplane and you can tell whether or not you're in the proper position just because that it just looks right. You've learned what that sight picture looks like and you just move your airplane to where it looks right. That's amazing what years of experience will do. <laughs> so probably one of the biggest things, especially with the younger crowd, is they all think that this stuff happens automatically, that they're going to be an overnight success. Where do you guys come from? What background did you have before you got into the T6 and the air show flying? Well, I grew up in a flying family. My dad bought his first airplane and started flying when I was about five years old. And uh, from that point on, we always had something around that, that, or certainly that he could fly. And then as we got, my brother and I ended up 10, 11, 12 years old. And we, he ended up, he'd have a Piper Pacer or a Mall or something, you know, that was a little tail dragger. We were mostly flying cross country, but we'd get to fly and we'd do a few takeoffs and landings. But then when we got a little bit older, my dad bought a J3 Cub. And so we started flying that early on. We also had a friend of ours had a Cessna 140 that he, uh, we had a, our own strip and he needed a place to keep it. So he just put it on our farm and kind of for rent. It was just, we had use of the airplane. So my brother and I, we played with that 140 quite a bit when we were coming up, when we were, you know, 14, 15 years old. And, uh, but our T6 that actually that my brother has, it's now the number two airplane. He bought in 1973, hmm. and so I was 15 years old when he bought it. So we were introduced to a T6 fairly early on. I didn't fly it till later. We had a Stearman, and I started flying the Stearman a fair amount, and then started flying the T6, but I didn't actually do that till I was uh, just about out of college and, and getting the heavier tailwheel experience. And my brother had, was doing the same thing. He actually flew it before I did, and uh, so he was... Matter of fact, what we started doing, my dad had bought a Mustang in 1979. So in the early 80s, what we'd end up doing, we'd get be invited to an air show. We'd take the Mustang, the T6, and the Stearman. Nice. And so all three of us would go kind of in a, of course, it wasn't really a gaggle because I was all, if I was in the Stearman, I was always the slowest. It took me twice as long to get there as everybody else did. <laughs> and, uh, but we'd go to air shows and do, you know, flybys and, and stuff. And, and, uh, 
My dad was a member of the CAF out of the Mississippi wing fairly early on, so they he'd go and and he was pretty involved in that in the early eighties. Steve Gustafson, his dad Merle, was very influential in the CAF, and my dad got to know him, and that was one of the reasons he would go and do air shows because he could go and you know Merle would call him and say, "I need you to bring the Mustang to." pine bluff or i need you to take it to whatever it was and then he'd show up and they'd do flybys and stuff and then he'd also do a solo routine so we started flying the airplane back in the early 80s and then but alan like i said he got to know merle and he, of course got to meet got to know steve pretty well so i think it was about 85 when they got together and started to uh, knock the ideas around about doing some formation airbags steve's dad merle Several years before, was doing a two-ship routine with another gentleman, and Steve's dad got killed in an accident in 1984. And so he told Alan that he'd always wanted to fly, tried to do formation like his dad had been doing. And so uh, he finally picked Alan and said, "Hey, you know, I'd like to see if I could fly on your wing." And so they went up and tried it, and that's kind of where the the whole thing got started. Hmm. Started getting invited to a lot of events because nobody saw anybody fly formation aerobatics and t6s in those days and and so that was fairly unique and it helped kind of jumpstart the team there's not many if at all right you're probably the only t6 formation team that i know of unless i'm missing somebody yeah the guys up in new york you got the geico team they fly t6s they're not in their air show routine they're not doing any aerobatics they do flybys and they'll do uh, different formations and they do certain breaks and rejoins and stuff like that but they're not doing any acro there's nobody doing formation aerobatics like we are there is a canadian harvard association they had a team they've been flying for a few years but i think they finally retired this year and uh i don't know that they're going to be doing any more air shows so but like i said mostly where they were flying was mostly in canada they have flown oshkosh a couple of times hmm. and and they did a routine that was similar to ours uh, but they did flying a four ship for a little while but then dropped back to a three ship for the last few years so i'd only seen them fly a couple of times at oshkosh that's the only place we ever ran into them gotcha but around the world, there is a T6 team in South Africa, and I think there's another one, I think like in New Zealand or somewhere, there's some guys that fly some uh, T6s. There's also some guys, you've seen the ones that water ski their T6s, those are the ones from South Africa. Okay. And, uh, <laughs> and the funny thing was, they had one of their guys come to uh, Oshkosh, and this has probably been 10 or 12 years ago, maybe even longer, and uh, this one guy came over and he was asking us some questions, and and so, like, because what they were doing, they'd fly a four ship, but they could never do a loop in four in with four airplanes. That always the slot guy would fall out. What they would do is they'd do a three ship loop, and then they'd have a solo, and then a three ship barrel roll, and then a solo. And and so they came and saw us do our act, and so they're you know really trying to ask all these questions about power settings and entry speeds and all that. And so the, they sit there the whole week. You know, every time we do something, he come the guy come back over and go, All right, now when you did this, you know, how did you set your power on this? What was your entry speed? You know, what was your altitude and all this trying to get, you know, to piece this thing together. <laughs> and so but the funny part was on the very last day they came over and the guy was actually looking at the airplanes and he came up to us and he goes, These airplanes are not racers <laughs> And it's like, Yeah, yeah, they're just dark airplanes. He goes, No. You don't understand. They're not racers. He had thought the whole week 
that we were all flying T6s that had a bunch of race mods. Uh, and that was the only reason we could do what we were doing was because we had all the race mods that makes the airplanes faster. Hmm. Our airplanes are box stock. And he was scratching his head. He goes, now look, you know, how are y'all doing that with stock airplanes? And it, he recognized that we apparently have worked hard enough to, to make that happen, make it look what it does. And even though we're doing it in stock airplanes. And that is amazing because they're also evenly matched. There's probably not a lot of extra smash. If he gets sucked, he gets sucked back. There's not an easy way to hit the afterburner on a propeller airplane. <laughs> so. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I stand corrected on the fact that our slot airplane has had a few mods. The slot airplane, they bondoed up some of the seams on the wings and stuff and to make it a little bit slicker. But other than just a few little items like that, they're basically stock airplanes. And uh, my airplane has no mods at all. The number two airplane, number one, two, and three have no mods at all. They're just stock airplanes. Amazing. I'm in trouble, Are you ready to get back to normal? Ready to get back outside in the sun with friends and family side by side? Go to the renegadeaviator.com website and click the Mayday link. Are you ready to see some fun family entertainment? Jets flying at high speed, low to the ground? Aerobatics, barnstormers, doing amazing things with airplanes. How about wing walkers or walls of fire? Inverted ribbon cuts and jet cars. This is America. There are two kinds of people in this world. Those who wait, hope, and let others do it. And those who push up the throttles and take action. If you're like me, someone who takes action, you will join me in this mission. Go to renegadeaviator.com and click the Mayday link. Save our air shows. Thanks for your help. Mark, over to your longevity matters, right? It's doing things and you see things from a different perspective. Although I've been flying for a lot of years, I've been going to air show for a lot of years. I'm fairly new into the air show side, so I'm learning. I'm a baby, even though I'm a 60-year-old baby, but I'm a, I'm a baby. What's your view of the air shows? Do they continue to improve? There's been challenges. I mean, where do you see the air shows going, in your opinion? Well, one of the reasons why we've had a fair amount of success is that the guys that fly a lot of the solo, you know, the up-and-coming guys in the past used to have a lot of little, what we always call kind of mom-and-pop air shows to perform and to get the experience. And so the problem is, is over the years, as the cost of these airplanes went up and the price of putting on an air show went up, then a lot of these little small flying events that we used to do back in the 70s and 80s, they all dissolved, and the only events that survived were the bigger events. And so what happens is it makes it very difficult for somebody new coming along because if you've got a big event, you're obligated to produce a fairly entertaining air show for your customer base, and you don't want to go try some new guy. It's very hard for somebody to break in, especially if the acts you know, are not all that exciting because either they're having to fly at a higher altitude because their waiver levels if not they hadn't been able to get their waiver down whatever the reason they're not quite as entertaining and so those people don't have the place to go to get those air shows under their belt like we did when it was back in the 70s and 80s there were air shows all over the place i mean some guys you know they'd have a, a little small country town and they'd put an air show on they'd 
they'd come up with a thousand gallons of gas and some rooms and some cars, and they always had a, had plenty of people, the performers, to come in and fly. But what's happened over the years, you know, only the bigger shows have survived, and so those air shows are looking more for the seasoned professional act, and so it makes it very difficult for somebody who's breaking to start in this business. It's, it's an uphill battle. If you're wanting to get in the air show business, it's not an easy thing to do anymore. Interesting. Do you think it's because of the costs of the, um, is it insurance? Is it lack of interest? Is it is it sponsor availability or all the above? What do you think? When we got started, we didn't have any sponsors. The reason why I had a, we had T6s because we had T6s. We didn't go and buy T6 with the idea, all right, we're going to buy this airplane and then we're going to start an air show team. I mean, we didn't start the air show business that way. We had the airplanes and flew them because we had a passion for it. And because you had a passion for it, you spent money on it. You got the extra experience. And then just as a desire to take it to the next level, we'd go get an aerobatic card. And then first few years I flew, whether it was a Stearman or a T6, I wasn't getting half the shows we did. We weren't even getting paid for. We just like, they might give you maybe a token amount of money or they give you gas and give you a room and a rental car. If I went to a show and got gas, a rental car and a hotel room, man, I thought I was on cloud nine. I was like, because if I stayed at home, I'd be doing the same amount of flying, but I'd be paying every penny of it. That's true. And so that's how a lot of people, that's how we got started, is we ended up going around and doing a lot of events for either free or almost free. And uh, so when this team started, it started because we had a passion for doing it, not because we're trying to make an air show business. Gotcha. It developed into an air show business. Matter of fact, I never would have had in my fondest dreams thought that, that I'd actually be a professional air show pilot. <laughs> I'm just a T6 guy. I'm just a guy that owns a T6 that can fly it half decent. And that just so ended up opening some doors to allow it to develop into a business. It goes back, I guess, out of decades of hard work. That's the overnight success. And I say this all the time because I hear it over and over and over again, no matter what we do. And this is what I like about air shows. It's excellence demonstrated. When you're watching people like you fly, you know, people like the aerosol aerobatic team out there, you're watching excellence demonstrated and it really gives people the understanding. It's why I love air shows so much that you can do whatever you want in this world. You better make up your mind what you want to do and you better be willing to work hard because the glory is taxiing past the crowd after you've landed, right? I mean, all the hard work, I don't think people realize just what goes into getting you guys out there. Right. We have people call us all the time and say, hey, man, one of these days I sure would like to fly with you guys. And I've had them say, well, you know, what would I need to do to be qualified to fly on the team? I said, well, first off, the first thing you need to do is go buy an airplane. <laughs> I said, and then go fly the thing, get three or 400 hours worth of experience and get a low-level aerobatic card and then come talk to us. And they go, oh, I got to own an airplane. I thought, that's what we all did. Everybody on the team owns their own airplane. Everybody on the team got their own flying time, got their own experience. This is not something you produce overnight. I mean, everybody here has got, before they flew on this team, had tons of air show experience under their belt before they ever started flying on this team. In order to be what I'd call show quality, is probably two or three years worth of flying. Yeah. It's not something you can go out and do in a couple of weeks. It's, yeah. it's, it's, uh, everybody on this team has got a ton of experience. Now, 
In our early days of the North American team, we didn't fly near as close. But to be able to fly and do what we're doing on the aeroshell aerobatic team, you know, it would take somebody a couple of years to get tuned up enough to be able to, to take one of those spots. And that's the reason why we don't change personnel very often. Our newest guy started in 08. Hmm. You know, so, yeah, just yeah. tell you that we just don't turn over very often. That's why you've got that success, that longevity, and uh, you represent Aeroshell in an outstanding fashion. And it shows in the quality of what you're flying out there. And as somebody who's, uh, I used to own a uh, my own T6, and at about 100 hours, I thought I knew everything. And at 400 hours in the airplane, I realized I didn't know anything about the T6. <laughs> so, <laughs> I go, man, this airplane. <laughs> well, we've had some people come along and they say, you know, they were T6 owners and they want to come fly with us and, uh, and kind of, you know, start doing a little training with the idea of, you know, one of these days join the team. And it's amazing how it's one thing to do is to fly T6. And then another thing to fly in formation. And there's a lot of guys that go out and do the NADA formation stuff and they get their wing cards and their lead cards. But when you start doing wing overs and rolls and stuff like that, it separates the men from the boys. And it's amazing. You'll have some guy that can fly excellent uh, position on a standard fast type of formation. But then all of a sudden you throw a big steep wing over in it. And that next thing you know, it's like, where the hell did you go? <laughs> they just, and it, you know, because they've just never done it. And it's amazing how it'll humble somebody when they come out and you, and you go fly with them and, and they have that happen to them. That's why I had to go into jets because they're a whole lot easier. <laughs> so what are you seeing in the pilots today? I do a lot of pilot training and jet aircraft and I'm amazed at the lack of stick and rudder skills that are out there. I mean, are you seeing that the same type of thing? I mean, you guys are stick and rudder. That's all you are. I'm also an examiner. And so, you know, I test not only private commercial, but then you know, I do ATP and do type ratings. I do a lot of experimental airplanes. And it's amazing how I get people that they'll go and they'll buy some kind of buy a T6, for example, and they want to start flying it. And it'd be their first time that they really ever had to use their feet. And it's kind of frustrating. A lot of the flight schools and a lot of the nowadays, the instructor base is so young because all of the guys with experience have all been hired up by an airline that a lot of the people coming up today are not getting those stick and rudder skills like the older generations did. Yeah, they're moving them through quick and they're in and out of there and they wanted to fly, you know, and push buttons and have a push button flying airplane. It's pretty simple to fly. It's the thing, a tailwheel aircraft in general, I mean, even the modern Citabriers or extras, nothing like flying a T6. That's why I love watching you guys fly because it, it really does take at least understand what you guys are going through to make that happen. The flying an extra, for instance, is a piece of cake in many respects. Nothing against the guys doing that, but it's a different skill set. Yeah, I've flown several extras over the years, and uh, I never stuck with it, though, because it's one of those deals that, you know, in this case, I got an airplane that has a lot more capability than the pilot. I always like being able to fly an airplane that my skill level is a little bit better than what the airplane's capacity is. <laughs> and because uh, I can make a T6 do about everything it'll do. I can make a Stearman do about anything it'll do. I can make a, do a, a Mustang about anything it'll do. But when I fly an extra, the airplane does way more than I can do. <laughs> so, I don't know. Just I, I've just always kind of, I've flown them a little bit because they're fun. 
but just never stuck with it because I was always a lot more comfortable going back and flying my old reliable T6. Outstanding. Outstanding. That is the aircraft. That T6 is what all the World War II fighter pilots went through and flew. Maybe that's why it was a demanding bird to fly. Yeah, that's why they called it the pilot maker. There you go. Now that we're looking at this season, and this season's pretty close to being kind of gone or done, what are some things or words of wisdom you can give to the people that are listening that are air show fans? What are some things they can do to ensure that the air shows stay this national? What I- well, one of the things, I was actually talking to a producer today, and they're knocking around some new ideas about having, you know, back in the old day, you had drive-in theaters. Well, they're actually talking about having a drive-in air show where they, instead of having some remote parking area and then having a big crowd area, they're actually talking about trying to make a arrange the parking so that the people can come and stay close to their car or in their car to, to satisfy the social distancing requirement, but still make it where they can watch the air show. And I think that was a kind of a neat concept. Uh, you know, obviously there'll be some challenges because they'll need to figure out how to delay something like that and how to park. I mean, certainly park, you have a lot more people on an area than you can park their cars, but there's certainly, there's more answers to this whole problem than just shutting everything and not having an air show. I think that people will start after this, start thinking outside the box. And, you know, it may change the way We've been doing business in the past, but I still think that people want to see airplanes fly. Aviation in general is is always intrigued the public, and as long as it does, and people are willing to pay money at the gate to come watch an air show, I still think we're going to have air shows. I agree. I first heard of the drive-in show, and at first, my initial reaction was negative on it, and then I was talking to another performer, and it made a lot of sense. You know what? Doing something, it may be a start, but I mean, we need to go back to, I guess I keep saying the old normal is our new normal. I want to go back to people standing out there shoulder to shoulder, touching airplanes, climbing all over them, talking to pilots. And I think we will get there. I just tend to get antsy a little bit and say, man, I I would just hate to see things change too much. But I think the, the key is, is that we keep people interested and that's not hard to keep the people interested, but getting them to come out. That's our challenge as performers and as people in the air show world. And again, I just tell people like the aerosol keep talking to these sponsors and letting them know that those of you that love air shows appreciate these sponsors because you know that really is that whole linchpin it needs to be good business for these people because they're in business and so are we i think that sponsors still going to be a need for it because even if the market's down or the market's up manufacturers are all trying to get market share And the way you get market share is through either promotions or sales efforts or whatever. And that's, and sponsorships are part of that whole package. And you can't just roll over and die. They're going, the shell oils and the the whatever the big corporations that are out there, they'll survive this pandemic and they're still have the same challenge of maintaining their market share. And they're going to have to advertise to do it. Now there may be a short term, uh, issue as far as cash flow because there's obviously right now most of the oil companies are not taking in a whole lot of money because yeah. the price of oil is so low but that's not going to last forever and so i think it'll come back but there are going to be some people that are damaged pretty badly in the interim and we just hope that we're one of the ones that can survive this whole thing 
I think you will. Because, you know, again, you are, you've been there. You're one of the benchmarks of air shows is the aerosol team. Mark, how do people find out more about your team and about your sponsors? You've got a website, obviously. What's that website? Yeah, we have a website. If you just put in your search engine, just aeroshell aerobatic team, our website, the actual root website is naat.net. And that's just the abbreviations for North American Aerobatic Team.net. But if you put in aeroshell team, it'll most of the search engines will, will slave over to it. But we put our schedule on there. We've got a list of our sponsors. There's a bios about our to the pilots. You know, there's just other information. There's promotional stuff that the air show producers can use, you know, some B-roll stuff and and um, a lot of good information on there. But people, everybody says, you know, do you have videos on your website? Well, we have a few, but I'm going to tell you, you can go to YouTube and put Aeroshell Team, and it just is page after page after page. And so I tell everybody, if you want to see some videos about us, just go to YouTube because they're everywhere. That's true. That's true. YouTube is the oracle right now for all things video. So, and there's a lot of them out there. Outstanding. Mark, I really appreciate you coming on. I know you're busy, but I really do appreciate it. And I think uh, our fans really enjoyed hearing your perspective on the Renegade Aviator Radio Show. I really do appreciate it. I am glad to be here. Thanks, thanks, David. Uh, Enjoyed talking to you. Likewise, sir. All right. All right, ladies and gentlemen, thanks again, Mr. Mark Henley of the Aeroshell Aerobatics team, a formation team with four T6s. Really cool stuff. Go check them out. NAAT.net. Go there and learn more about the Airshow team. And we're coming back for one more segment, so stay right there. If you are part of my crew, you get insider parts of these interviews. You get a whole bunch more than just the radio show. So go to RenegadeAV8R.com and click on any of the links that say Join My Crew. I wrap this up with one more segment. Here we go. Stay right there. All right, ladies and gentlemen, David Costa, the Renegade Aviator. Final segment of this week's radio show, and I can't encourage you enough to go find our show wherever you listen to podcasts because there's one segment of the market that loves radio and there's another segment of the market that loves podcasts. So if you look for the Renegade Aviator Radio Show, wherever you listen to podcasts, you can listen to each and every one of our shows and it costs you nothing. However, if you want to become a member of our crew, go to my website, renegadeav8r.com, renegadeaviator.com, and click one of the links that says Join My Crew, where you can find out how to get extended versions of these interviews and a whole lot of other really cool stuff. So, Mark Henley, uh, the lead pilot for the Aeroshell Aerobatics team, a staple in the industry. And this week, that's what we talked about, you know, the state of the industry. I'm on this kick, Mayday Save Our Air Shows. It is absolutely vitally important that you and I and each one of us that loves excellence demonstrated that we do something to save our air shows. Air shows do not survive without sponsors. You heard Mark say that. You need to reach out to these sponsors. I started a letter writing campaign. I simply 
send out thank you notes to air show sponsors. It's easy, it's simple, and all it says is hang with us, man. Thank you for supporting what we love. The other thing I want to touch in here or touch into in this brief time I have left with you on the radio is the small local air show, I think, is what's going to bring us back. And I'm going to reach out. I'm going to be doing more on this as we go. We need to help that new generation of air show performer get started doing air shows. We need to grow the number of air shows, and we need to help that local community airport to put on aviation events, fly-ins, and performances. So that's going to be my focus as well. It's not just the big air shows, but how do we help that small air show? This is where we're going to get the grassroots efforts again. They need not be as expensive as they are to put on these massive events. So, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening each and every week. I got to go on the radio, but if you're part of my crew, stay tuned. There's more good stuff coming. This is David Costa in the air with my TS-11 Iskra jet and on air with you right now. Be back next week. See ya. See ya.